All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Just Dow It podcast, the podcast for people starting DAOs. I'm Adam Miller, and I'm your host. I'm the CEO of MyDAO, which provides legal entity solutions for DAOs. And prior to starting MyDAO, I did consulting for people starting and operating DAOs. First, I'd like to welcome our guest, Anna. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, would you please introduce yourself and tell us, among other things, what makes you an authority on DAOs? Thank you so much for having me here. Um, to the first question, my main background is in marketing, operations, and strategy. And I did that mainly with startups. I moved to Web3 space in November as a marketing consultant for a blockchain developer platform. And then I was invited um, to do marketing at other service DAOs. A big part of my marketing and Web3 journey is nonprofit efforts and using DAOs to create impact in the real world. Awesome. So what I think you're doing one DAO in particular that's connected to Ukraine. Is that right? Yeah. So I've been invited back in March to the Community and Operations for Peace DAO. And that's an effort to support peace efforts around the world by different local volunteer groups. And for the past months, we've been focusing on Ukraine. Um, now the DAO is transitioning more to um, other world efforts. I decided to leave it to focus more on Ukraine, uh, as it is an issue that is closer and more dear to me. But it's been an incredible experience. And uh, I think we've created a lot of impact operating that effort as a DAO. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. For the first half of the show, we will do the Just Dow It News Report. And then in the second half, we will turn to uh, more of an interview with Anna. So thank you so much. Um, for the Just Dow It News Report, each article I will summarize for the audience and share my take. And then we'll turn it over to you, Anna, if you want to give your perspective as well. All right. The first article of the day is from The Block. And the headline is, Aragon community voting to transfer treasury funds after dissolving old DAO. The DAO dissolution means the Aragon community needs to decide on what to do with the treasury funds. Aragon is dissolving the old DAO for a new one that allows for delegated voting. I thought this was a good story because Aragon is one of the first companies that set out to build DAO technology infrastructure with things like uh, token-weighted voting, and they have their Aragon court dispute resolution system. Um, and one of the things I've always heard from people uh, who work on Aragon or at Aragon is they've always planned on going from more of a traditional corporate structure with a lot of hierar hierarchy to turning into a DAO where things are more decentralized. And it's exciting to see that they are making headway, uh, moving some of their funds into a more decentralized uh, DAO structure. It's interesting to hear Web2 organizations trying to move into the Web3 directions. Um, I think the first thing that I would question is the question of incentives and why the organization itself wants to do it. I'm not very familiar with the company or the DAO, but the purpose there is probably to get more you know, user activity involved. And so the kind of a challenging issue there is once you say that our users have a say in how we govern our efforts, um, then you have to be very like proactive and actually um, making sure that you do listen to your users. So here I would ask you, 
is that the decision that the users made and the community made to make the switch and create a new DAO? Um, what is was it a single-handedly a decision of the organization to say yes, we're just moving because we have the authority to do so? So it's interesting how they they got different stakeholders on board with the idea. Yeah, good point. And there's a lot of money involved too, which certainly raises the stakes. There's something like 160 million dollars of ETH and stable coins involved in Aragon. And uh, I think you raise a great question that people should often ask themselves more, which is why are you starting a DAO or why are you turning this into a DAO? Um, and uh, I don't know what the answer is for Aragon. I think sometimes you know decentralization is uh, something that's sought after for its own in its own right because it's just a, a, a value or a principle or a belief of the people who are starting the project or involved in the project that things should be decentralized. And then maybe other times an organization does it because they think it will actually be more effective or engaging and as a result will make the product better. Um, in this case, I don't know which one it is. Next article from Coindesk is CFTC's Uki DAO action shatters illusion of regulator proof protocol. The action raises still unanswered questions about who is culpable when a DAO commits a crime. Will casting a vote with a governance token be seen as a smoking gun? So this is a really um, important uh, story that came out over the past week, which is the CFTC, which is a U.S. regulator of, of, of futures and other financial products, stands for the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, um, had uh, sued B0X. And also this new DAO that came out of B0X, which is called Uki DAO. Um, a lot of us were wondering, you know, what's this going to end up looking like? Um, one of the interesting things was that the regulator is going after the individuals who founded the DAO. And they're saying that anyone who ever voted on the activity of the DAO is also going to be held liable for the actions of the DAO. And this raised a lot of really interesting questions. I mean, for one thing, of course, being in the legal entity business, one of the things we like to talk about is the corporate veil, the liability shield that having a, a legal entity can provide. Now, in this case, because there's criminal activity, the founders probably would not have been protected by the liability shield anyways. But certainly the governance token holders you know, in this situation, they're going to be treated as if this is a general partnership, which means everyone who participates is potentially liable for the actions of the organization versus if there was a legal entity in place, at least there would be clarity about who's responsible for the organization's actions, who is a part of the organization and who is not. And there would be an entity that the government could go after instead of going only after the people. What ended up happening here is the government is settling um, uh, the two with the two founders, um, giving them a two hundred and fifty thousand dollars civil monetary penalty, and they're promising not to break the law again. Um, so certainly, uh, for some founders, uh, that will uh, give them some pause if they're going and looking to do futures trading related work or or found a DAO. Um, Anna, let me turn to you for your reaction on this one. So this is a very interesting topic, and I think that's. The topic of liabilities in DAOs was the reason why we met in the first place. Um, yeah, that's at MCO, you were you were leading a panel about the need for you know legal incorporation of DAOs. Um, I find it extremely interesting, both in this case and in the case of Tornado Cash. Um, I think a question and and DAOs make different decisions whether to incorporate or not for a variety of reasons. Um, 
liability being a big part of them. But a better question here is government justified in going after, you know, the individual contributors and what is the role of intent in legal debates like this one? Because from my understanding, like proving the intent to commit a crime is a big part of someone to be convicted of a crime. If that is the case with the founders, that is justified. If general partners or like DAO contributors were participating in the ecosystem and in the decisions around that DAO, but were not directly involved in the criminal activity, had no intent, had no awareness, and then no intent, how liable can they be? Yeah, it's a great question. It reminds me too that I, I heard that the way the CFTC announced to the community that um, they were coming after them was in their web forum, because this is a DAO and there's no you know, uh, phone book where you can look up how to get in touch with all these governance token holders. So they just posted it to the forum. So imagine being someone who's just someone who likes to go to the forum for some technology product you use and share your ideas or socialize. And now all of a sudden that's where you're being hit with um, this potential liability. So I, I think it's a great point. And I think actually usually what I've seen with the SEC and CFTC and other regulators is they do usually try to just go after people who have bad intent or are doing something that's clearly wrong. They're not usually going after like every single project that uses a governance token and saying like, we're coming after all of you for securities violations. No, they've gone after like three or four DAOs that um, were clearly fraudulent or misleading towards the people who bought their token, because those are people who clearly deserve to get in some trouble. And it doesn't mean they won't eventually go after more folks, but I, I think you're right that intent uh, plays a huge role here. I'm curious how this handled typically in corporate cases when company management uh, is making you know, irresponsible decisions and committing fraud you wouldn't go after employees and generally employees who are also stakeholders and hold equity in that corporation, they might be even considered victims of the fraud committed by the management. So I wonder like why the parallel wasn't drawn in a similar way as it is mm. in corporate cases and why the way that they're trying to dive into this new space of DAOs as, as new legal entities is, is so much different because law it's requires a, consistency. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, great point. And, and I, I think you're right, like in a traditional corporate scenario, if anyone's going to get in trouble, it's going to be like the CEO and the CFO, or maybe someone from the board, certainly not the employees. And uh, so I, I agree, first and foremost, that they probably shouldn't be going after these token holders, because it just doesn't really make sense. But I will say that's another thing that a legal entity, or at least having some like legal documents that express how your organization works can help you by clarifying that the role that these voters and these token holders have in the community is different from the role of, let's say, some of the founders maybe are considered managing members or core team members. So at least having some kind of structure or some kind of documentation that shows the structure, maybe then the regulator could look at that and say, okay, clearly it's just this smaller group of people that we should hold criminally liable. Yeah, but let's say, for example, you want to formalize your DAO and all the main like key contributors. People are involved in multiple DAOs. They might want to, you know, just stop by for community calls. They might want to, you know, participate in one bounty but not, you know, move on to the next project. At what point is it important to formalize their contribution to the DAO? Um, that's something to answer. And then also, like, why? Why, for example, in this case, we have token voting, 
why having that token and recorded vote on the blockchain, it almost sounds like this is what makes it more serious. So why token voting is treated as a more serious action in the legal space as, for example, just coming to a community call and voicing your opinion. Um, mm. That's something, I guess, that they need to justify in order to say, yes, everyone who contributed to voting should be liable. It reminds me of what there was a dissenting opinion from one of the board members or who, whatever the position was at the CFTC who wrote that one of the things she didn't like about this opinion was that it, it's, it's, it's penalizing people for doing something good. And that good thing they're doing is being willing to take part in the governance over a project. And if you're going to go ahead and, and penalize people for um, uh, taking their time and their money and putting it into trying to do good governance over an organization, you're going to end up with fewer people wanting to be involved in governance, right? Maybe we end up in a world where it, it, DAOs of the future um, will have just normal employees because people didn't want to be token you know, compensated contributors, they wanted to be an employee because they didn't want the liability. So it does seem like, you know, this case is also kind of sending the wrong message um, to a group of people that maybe we should be supporting instead, which is people willing to take part in governance. All right. Next article is from Cointelegraph magazine. And the headline is, toss in your job and make $300,000 working for a DAO. Here's how. And my first reaction was, <laughs> yeah, right. where do I sign up? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it turns out that was basically clickbait because the article of doesn't course. really go into <laughs> telling you how to do that. Um, and if anything, hopefully people don't think that's how it really works because it, it definitely doesn't. I mean, if you're like a veteran Solidity developer, then yeah, you'll get paid $300,000 whether you go work for a DAO or a traditional company. But I mean, almost no one's actually making that much. And certainly it's not like just follow these three steps and you'll make 300 grand in a DAO. So, um, so what was the article about? What wisdom did they share? Yeah, so the article is actually about employees quitting their corporate nine to five day jobs to go work for DAOs instead. <laughs> And it does talk about how um, there's a lot of different ways of doing that, right? It, it can be taking something that looks more like a traditional job, but is for a DAO instead, all the way to just spending an hour a day, you know, working on a project for a, a one DAO and an hour a day working for another DAO and really um, taking on a whole new different approach to, to your work life. Um, and uh, there's actually no information in the article about how to make $300,000 a year, unfortunately. <laughs> It's an it's an interesting concept, and I I've thought about this a lot in terms of like do should I continue working for traditional companies and startups or should I move into Web three? And I think kind of the latter point that you've mentioned about being able to choose the different projects without having to commit a single thing. That I mean, realistically, work is taking a big chunk of our lives. And so if you spend those 40 hours, you can commit it to one idea. And in a few years, you look back and you're like, wow, <laughs> I updated the website for this company. <laughs> this was great. You know, or you can look, look back and you've contributed to different projects, especially in the new fields like Web3. And um, that's personally just sounds more exciting and more extrinsically motivated. And I think it brings a lot more autonomy and like self-determination back to people to say, hey, there's a space where, first of all, you can be yourself. 
um, you can, you know, not be judged by some of traditional characteristics like gender and race, because you can choose to be, you know, completely anonymous and you can contribute. Your opinions are, are going to matter and, and make an impact, larger impact in a smaller ponds. <laughs> um, and then just overall more exciting. And um, for me as individual, and I think for a lot of people I know in this space. And I think part of that reason for that right now, well, let me pose it as a question, is part of the reason for that right now, just that DAOs are so new. And so most DAOs are basically startups. And so really the difference is people are joining startups instead of big companies, or is it something about the nature of a DAO that makes it more exciting? I think the the first one, the fact that it's new, for me, this is not exciting. <laughs> I worked on startups mm. for a long time, and now I'm just really craving come to come into an organization where some of the processes are already set up and you can do the actual work <laughs> you've been kind of hired to do or chose to do. Um, so the, I, I know the innovation and setting up new processes is a big thing and people do enjoy doing this, but for me, that's not the, the attractive point. Um, I think the attractive point is ownership and the flexibility in terms of, you know, you, you decide what is it that you'd like to contribute to if you don't, the, the way of the barrier to exit is lower than in traditional companies. The barrier to enter new projects is also lower than uh, in traditional companies. And again, as, as most of the projects are rewarding the contributors with tokens, basically giving them you know access to the social and economic output that that project creates that also incentivizes you to, to work and makes, makes you happier because you know that what you contribute into this ecosystems will get back to you in the form of that economic or social reward. You know, one of my guests uh, made an interesting point a couple months ago, which is we're maybe moving into a world where people own less and less, and instead we rent stuff, right? Whether it's renting a scooter or renting a, you know, leasing a car, renting a car instead of owning these things, maybe um, DAOs are a way for people to get back a sense of ownership in their lives where instead of just getting paid to do stuff, you do stuff and you're a part owner of that project or that endeavor or that community or, or whatever it is. Yeah. And most of the times when you enter a project, this is how most of the efforts there are framed. Like you're, you're even in a service DAO where you're, for example, working to, you know, sell, sell the service of your community to someone else. You get, you know, the economic reward for it, even there in meetings, people continue to emphasize, hey, I know I'm, for example, a marketing lead right now, but that doesn't mean that I'm the only one who's calling the shots and you are a part of this and you are, you know, able to to make contributions. You, your contributions are welcome here and the output of those contributions will reflect back on you. All right. Next article, also from Cointelegraph. The headline is Pro Sports League Karate Combat to Launch DAO for Fan Athlete Governance. <laughs> Karate Combat's DAO yeah. will be launched as part of a three-year sponsorship deal with Hedera's HBAR Foundation, expected to go live in December 2022. I'll read one more line. The Karate Combat, uh, a prominent full-contact martial arts league, announced the decision to form a decentralized autonomous organization, or DAO, to transition its governance to fans and athletes. You want to go first on this one? <laughs> I don't know. You first said like martial arts and I'm like, oh my gosh, I know nothing about it. But then I was like, <laughs> I did martial arts. Like I actually like martial mm. arts. I don't, 
I didn't do it professionally, but, and I'm not a fan um, of like different sport teams, but I've done it. And I think um, it's fun. I, I like to see different organizations trying to integrate the communities that were supporting them either way. And again, reward, reward their further support and, and participation. Uh, So I'm just curious what motivated their decision. Did, is that something mentioned in the article? That's such a great question. There's actually a quote that does um, help answer that question. The sporting world must evolve to increase engagement with a new generation of fans who have grown up on social media and digital gaming. They expect mm-hmm. to be active participants in the action rather than passive viewers. This is interesting. It sounds like they're trying to you know, increase engagement. So instead of social media comments, you have fans voting. I guess the next question is, how much actual power the decision-making of this fan base will have on how the club mm-hmm. is operated. Um, from the things that we talked about, like self-determination, ownership, um, that is amazing. And that will probably bring a lot of engagement to them because, because that will advance people's feeling like an intrinsic motivation uh, and feeling of belonging to that community. I'm curious to see where, where it ends for them. What are your thoughts? So I think about fantasy sports and how and and sports betting and how much what? those what things have increased sports? engagement. <laughs> fantasy what, sports, what? yeah, because I saw it everywhere on Twitter, and I'm so like mm. I don't get it. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, thank you for asking. So fantasy sports, generally speaking, is where people join leagues, usually online, of let's say ten or fifteen of their friends or strangers across the internet. And each season, you draft players onto your team from anywhere in the league. So let's say we're talking about football, uh, American football, NFL, right? At the beginning of the year, you draft your team, but your team has the quarterback from the Patriots, the wide receiver from the Seahawks, a defensive uh, player from, or the whole defense of Kansas City, because it makes you usually choose the defense together. Maybe you get the special teams of another team. And so each Sunday when you're watching the games, you're not just rooting for a team, you're rooting for players across the whole league that happen to be on your fantasy team. So you want to see like a certain wide receiver make a lot of catches, but then maybe the opposing quarterback, you also want to see him make a lot of good plays, or, or maybe he's on the other team and you want to see him make not make good plays. And so it makes it so that you care about almost every game that's happening all the time, at least in some way. And, and I think that's why fans love it so much. I mean, yeah, it's fun to compete with your friends and, and kind of run your own team, but it gives you more things to care about. Just like with sports betting, especially as it's become legalized in a lot of the United States over the past several years, you have things like DraftKings, where people are betting on the most weird, esoteric, random stuff to happen. Like, will this particular receiver you know, catch six, get 60 yards or more this game? Or will this team have three or more fumbles today? Or will that team give up five or, you know, all these different things and you can combine them and bet on all of them happening on the same day. So you're getting a huge payout that's not likely to ever happen and what's called a parlay. So I, I think these are two great examples of uh, things that, I mean, first of all, people used to think sports gambling should be illegal almost everywhere in the United States, except in Vegas. And that's something that people are slowly coming around to. I have a feeling this idea of giving governance rights to fans is going to follow the same pattern. It's hard to imagine today. If I think about the NHL, which is my favorite league, the hockey league in the United, well, like global-ish hockey league, but in the United States, 
it's hard to imagine them letting the fans vote on rule changes or uh, new teams or you know whatever it is about the sport. Um, but I feel like in the long run, things will move slowly in that direction. And eventually, if people get to choose between a sport where they are part of the governance structure versus a sport where they're not, they're going to naturally be more interested in the one where they're part of the governance structure. And eventually everyone will be forced to do it. This is crazily gives me um, flashbacks to when I was writing about Taiwan and open referendums there. I don't know if, I don't think they've done blockchain voting, but they did move to closer to direct democracy by introducing, you know, open referendums, letting people to give more input in legislature. And when I was writing about it, I was like, oh, that's so interesting because they probably just have very liberal government that allowed that switch to happen. And in fact, it wasn't the case. And they had very conservative group within government. But once people learned that this was an option and that that's something they contribute to, could contribute to, regardless of their previous political identification, you know, they wouldn't say no to more input into the government. And so that led to the rise of candidates who said, yes, we're going to get more input from people. We encourage that. And then the candidates who were, you know, not aligned with this idea were voted out of office. And super, super similar, potentially, you have this major sports league. It is essentially a business. They have really high stakes in this business, and they don't want to have any direct input. But slowly, as the level, the barrier starts to open up for other sports team, they will have to consider that this is something that the fans want. And if they don't give it, they will move on to, you know, other sports or other teams um, who can provide that. Exactly. Yeah. Very exciting. All right. Next article is from Yahoo Finance. Um, Partly exciting because it's fun to see traditional media talking about crypto and DAOs especially. This article is called Digital Asset Manager Safe to Offer Governance Token for Safe DAO. So SAFE is the company or project, I should say, formerly known as Gnosis SAFE. Probably more people are familiar with that name. Uh, They are renaming themselves to just SAFE. And they are launching a token uh, that will serve uh, to provide governance rights to the DAO that will govern their projects and their community. This one, I think, is really exciting uh, because Gnosis Safe, or now Safe, I think is one of the most impactful tools in the world of crypto. Um, I saw a statistic that over $40 billion are held in Gnosis Safes. Uh, Certainly not all of those are related to DAOs. Many of them surely are not. Um, But a lot of DAOs are also using uh, safes for either um, holding their treasury amongst a trusted group of individuals, like let's say five or seven or nine signatories or core team members or founders or leaders, whatever it is, and then combining that with something like Snapshot to do uh, voting and then expecting that the people who control the safe will execute on the wishes of the community as expressed through Snapshot. But safe also has a lot of plugins available, and those plugins allow you to do things like directly control a safe from a DAO. So for example, DAO House, which is one of the leading DAO platforms, it's based on the Moloch uh, open source smart contract uh, DAO platform. Um, you can connect a, a Moloch DAO or a DAO House DAO to a Gnosis safe and actually have your community or your governance uh, token holders or governance rights holders directly control that safe. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a really meaningful tool in the space of DAOs. 
That was a great advertisement. <laughs> and I agree with every <laughs> word you said. Um, we've been using it for PeaceDAO and it's widely used in other projects that I know of. It's awesome. I assume that the reason they are migrating to a DAO system is because they understand that the value of their product is there only because there are so many other projects that are supporting them by using the tool. Um, so was, was that kind of their line of thinking that this will reward people who enabled the safe to, to, lar to get to the scale that it is at now? You know, that's a great question. And I don't know if that is a motivation or not. And I also don't know if it is, if they would say it, because that starts getting you into, you know, the regulatory gray area of whether these are securities or not, if you're telling people that right. they have value, right, and it's a reward. So maybe under the table in the back of their minds, it is, but not outwardly. I'm just super curious, because we had the discussion um, when I was at PeaceDAO, where we have, we had like, so again, briefly about PeaceDAO, it's an effort to support different peace efforts around the world. We were focused on Ukraine and we had a general donation pools for people to, to donate and we were rewarding them with tokens that allowed them to vote on what projects in Ukraine we will fund. And at some point when we were having conversations with legal professionals, they mentioned that it might not be really good for us to say that this is a reward because that brings us into that gray area of law. Is that generally the sentiment? Should DAOs not do that? Tell us because we don't, we don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> so I think actually there's a nuance to it that's important to share um, that comes into play in both of these situations, which is that the, the rules that the SEC uses to determine whether or not something is a security is called the Howey test. And one of the four pillars of the Howey test is asking whether there is an expectation of profit from receiving this thing. Now that's different from just getting a reward in the moment, right? That has to do with what they're telling you to expect in the future. I don't think anyone suspects that there's a problem with giving out tokens as a reward, even if they have value. The potential problem that starts to make that token look like a security and potentially make you have to follow other regulations from the SEC or other regulators is when you're telling people that its value is gonna go up. So that's, that's where people, I think, start to get into trouble. And so I think even just saying it's a reward, I guess, to me, it started hitting some of the same red flags. But really, I don't think there's any problem with it being a reward. It's more, what are you telling people about its future value? Got it. So in the case of, of SAFE, if they say that this is, even if they use the word reward, as long as they don't talk about economic rewards, they're safe. <laughs> Uh, no <laughs> yeah, <nice. laughs> and as long as yeah right future economic reward exactly yeah well i mean because the other it's so interesting because when we talk about tokens we only focus on you know the economic value but a token is it's not really a dollar like there's not only an economic value attached to it it's also all the social value and then many of the DAOs. That social value is, you know, you either being officially recognized as a part of a certain community or it's you having, um, you know, access to the decision making and, and governance for that community. So I guess if they say, yes, there's a token reward, but that allows people to just share their input and that will mean that their input will be heard by the organization, then should that be a problem? 
Yeah, and I think this is where we need a new regulatory framework or clarity because I, you're right. And I'd say in most DAOs, whether the DAO and its leaders are telling people to expect profit, to profit off of the token in the future or not, people are expecting it because they're expecting that the social value will go up. And so demand for the token will go up. And so you'll be able to sell that token at a higher price. And I think it's this like unspoken arrangement that, you know, a lot of people are probably party to knowingly and others maybe not so knowingly that the DAO is telling you, do not expect a profit. We're not going to do anything to try to make you profit from this token. We don't want it to be considered a security. It's just governance rights. But then as they say it, they kind of know that the people on the other end might be hearing that and still expecting to make a profit. And I don't think that the SEC has ever really, it actually, it'd probably be a good thing to ask a lawyer specifically, but to my knowledge, they haven't clarified if you, if, if the team of the DAO does not create the expectation of profit, but you still have an expectation of profit, does that meet that pillar of the Howey test? And I don't think there's a clear answer. I have talked to a lot of lawyers about just answering that question, and I, I haven't heard anyone say that they think they know the answer at this point. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I would think about this, and I'm definitely not a lawyer, <laughs> neither neither lawyer nor paralegal. I'm far from this. But when you're talking about the intention to get the economic gain, does that implies that there has to be a place for this to happen. So the token has to be like listed on secondary exchanges um, to for people to actually start trading it. In that case does the organization itself takes on the liability for the token becoming a security or is it a person who launched the token on you know that exchange platform should be liable and that is like two separate things from the organization and you know the, the security issuer because for example with with our project one thing we just said was like we the peace tokens they are not going to be on any of the exchanges so like the, no point to think about it from the economic standpoint, is safe? Yeah. Like, is it already launched somewhere else? It's a good question. I don't know, but I definitely think that's a good avenue for, for further investigation. All right. The last article of the day is from the Sobol blog on Mirror. So it's at uh, media.sobol.eth. And this article's headline is. The Pragmatist's Guide to Dowing, aka Reasonable Ways to Govern a Dow. This article is by some people who have been there, done that in the self-management community. This one I highlight because this is not a news story. This is like a, uh, a, a tome, an explainer, uh, trying to dig into like what is wrong with Dow governance today. Um, what are some different strategies that can be considered? What are some mental models for thinking about how governance works in a DAO? Looking at both the hard power side as well as the social side. So definitely recommend this article for anyone who is digging into the space of DAOs, trying to think through how to design DAOs and governance systems for DAOs. It's a lot of really, really good ideas in here. And let me just read the end of the article. DAOs need to consider new ways to make decisions. We encourage them to consider bottom-up decision-making by consent. This approach offers a very strong, well-tested foundation for distributing authority to where it can be most effective while offering protection from attack vectors. I think what they're getting at here, and having read some of the rest of the article, is this concept of decision-making by consent, 
I think generally what they're saying is rather than having the whole DAO vote on everything every single time, vote once or occasionally to delegate decision-making power to a subgroup, like let's say a sub-DAO or just a, a, a team within the DAO that's focused on marketing and say, you guys get to decide about marketing and maybe here's your budget. And until we revoke that right, you get to decide without having to come back to the whole DAO to vote on everything. Um, so that's one possible takeaway from this article. What do you think, Anna? When you only have to vote on decisions that are most relevant to your function within the DAO, um, that's much better than you have to decide every on every single issue. I actually, I saw that article and I know that it was collected by Justin, who is um, a person I trust <laughs> in, in this in this area. Um, he's um, a bankless governance and, and operations uh, person, and he has a lot of good thoughts on this. But operationally, that's going to make decision-making within DAOs faster and better, which is great. One thing that I'd be cautious of is when you delegate authority to different subgroups, there's, and passing the vote to delegate that authority, it's much easier to do that than to revoke that authority. And in most of the times when a DAO votes, the conformity issues is there and people tend to agree on whatever else the majority agrees to. So if someone, for example, was dissatisfied with the performance of a certain functional group within a service DAO, you know, what are the chances that their proposal for revoking that authority from the marketing group, for example, would be heard? An interesting way to deal with it that I also discussed with someone from MCON was setting up the time boundary for how long the authority is being delegated to these groups and basically saying like, we will revise this every month or every three months. And so in that case, you don't have to go through this like very uncomfortable process of taking something away from, from a group of people and, and getting other people on board with you to make that uncomfortable decision. You're just basically revising and reconsidering new groups of people every time. All right, let's turn to the featured guest interview. We have already been talking about a lot of cool stuff, but now we're going to dig a little bit more, Anna, into your background and your story and the advice that you have for people listening to the show. So first of all, could we ask you to go a little bit more into how you got into Web3 and DAOs in the first place? Do you want the longer story or the shorter story? <laughs> <laughs> I want the long story. Okay, because the longer is, I guess, more fun. Um, I'm originally from Ukraine, and in 2018, I was looking for, for jobs. I went to our capital city, Kiev, and I was applying for a, a bunch of random positions. And two of them that I got accepted to was at the, like a fintech company. And once I started working for the fintech company, they, they did like training, explained to me that they're selling this ETF for people who want to you know invest in bitcoin and in crypto in general and they were yeah they're like we are helping people make money and i was like this is this sounds good i did ask them like oh so how is your you know how do you put together your etf and they're like we're using ai and i'm like well i didn't know much about the ai at a time so i asked them well how do you create your ai the answer was really like blurry. <laughs> so the first day I started working, I was doing sales and I called multiple people who were purchasers, buyers, <laughs> sorry, of that ETF. And 
they were very mad. <laughs> they were like, what is, the, like, we didn't, we lost our money. We cannot put any more. We're already from low income family. So that organization was clearly a scammy one. And to me, that, that was my first exposure to cryptocurrencies. And to me, that created an impression that whatever crypto is, it's not something I want to affiliate myself with. I quit on my first actual work day and I was like, thank you. I will, you know, not lie to people. And ever since when anyone would try to talk to me about crypto and blockchain, which to me then was just associated with crypto, I'd be like, no, 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 thank you. I actually would rather avoid this discussion. I can go work on AI on or some other tech products. I don't need to get into this space that is full of scam. And then my friend, uh, when we were studying, so for, for my university, I did cognitive neuroscience and governance. And I was taking a lot of classes like legal philosophy, constitutional design, and so on. And one of my friends in the constitutional design class uh, said, hey, there's this thing called DAOs. And a lot of the governance challenges that they're struggling with could be solved by taking in some of the concepts from that we're discussing here about constitutional design and design of nation states and apply it to you know, the smaller communities of people who are trying to manage their resources. And intellectually, that got me very excited. I was like, okay, I, I am open to check out what DAOs are. And that's once, once I did that, I learned more about DAOs. And then I was like, okay, I am open to you know, check out what tokens are, what, what crypto is, what Web3 is. And that was my, my way of accepting the space. And then in November of last year, I was invited to do marketing consulting for a blockchain developer platform. Uh, with them, I went to East Denver, where I met many people from, from Web3 community and learned what it means to, to do things the Web3 way. And as it happened with the war in Ukraine, I, I put a pause on my Web3 efforts, but then Adele, Peace DAO found me and, and kind of brought me back. And now I'm working. Now I'm dipping my toes into service DAOs. Uh, so Bingo's Consulting is, is one example uh, that I joined to support marketing and, and business development efforts and help them with onboarding. And I'm looking forward to more projects because I really enjoy working with people who are in Web3, first of all. And second of all, um, I think that the idea of Web3 ethos and how it how it aims to bring us more, you know, autonomy and ownership uh, and flexibility in the way we work was really appealing to me. So that's, mm. that's how I got here. <laughs> that's awesome. Beautiful story. What is the Web3 ethos that you, that you talk about? To me, Web3 is the bringing back the ownership, as you mentioned earlier, and letting whoever contributes partake in the positive or negative outcome of whatever their efforts are. And another thing is permissionability. And in a way, I really enjoy how DAOs are open to contributors of any kind. And there's no, you know, formal labels that you bring with you into a DAO. Obviously, when you come in and you say, hey, I, I've done marketing in the past, you're more prone to, you know, be selected for functional roles within a DAO. But at the same time, if you are someone who has no experience and you come in, your contributions to meetings and projects are still welcome and you have a chance to assert that, you know, you have the skills and talents and, and show that you, you could be a valuable contributor. 
Yeah, awesome. Very nice. So what projects are you working on right now that relate to DAOs? So my first like actual DAO experience was with Peace DAO. And I've done the, the community and operations for them for, for months now. Uh, and sadly decided to leave because the DAO, um, DAO made a decision to focus more on efforts worldwide. And for me, the Ukraine cause is still very prominent in my life and I want to continue supporting it. Um, with that, for, for the Ukraine volunteering efforts, I moved back to a project that was started in February that is Help UA Now. And that is another project to bring awareness about different high-impact volunteer groups in Ukraine and specifically about people who go into active combat zones and help evacuate people and bring aid to them and save lives where large NGOs are not choosing not to go into. Uh, so this is an effort that has never been a DAO, but it was always, uh, a, a big part of it was built by Web3 contributors. And we're currently in discussion and considering whether we should make it more Web3 and whether it makes sense for us as a project to go the Web3 way. Outside of that, as I mentioned before, I'm trying to to get into service DAOs and see if I can make my more professional career in Web3 world. And um, my first step, for I think it's almost months and a half ago, was that I joined Bankless Consulting. And now I'm looking forward to support more projects. I am also started a Web3 design firm in hopes to make um, DAOs and Web3 efforts prettier and more accessible to users. Mm helping them communicate nice. their goals and um, their efforts visually. Cool. And what does Bankless Consulting do? Tell us a little bit more about that. Bankless Consulting is a consulting firm that is also decentralized, permissionless, and Web3 native, meaning that contrary to you know traditional Web3, contrary to traditional firms, there is a level of decision-making that is accepted from contributors. So there's a governance board, there's um, associate who get voting rights. It's permissionless in a way that anyone can enter the firm and you don't need to come from Ivy League University to, to be a part of the consulting firm, but you do have to um, be proactive in showing that you can do things and that you can create value for both the bankless consulting and for the clients. And the final part is the Web3 native, which is that um, most of the people that are already within working with bankless consulting, they have some operational experience in Web3. Uh, they're in experts at what they do. And people who are, who are newer, because bankless consulting is an affiliate of bankless DAO, are really encouraged to explore the educational resources that bankless DAO provide, and then come back and, and work for bankless consulting. Cool. And so is a consulting just for Web3 projects? Is that like the subject matter of the consulting or consulting on anything? This used to be because by default, with, with the Bankless brand, a lot of Web3 projects once learn about Bankless Consulting, they try to come in and ask for help naturally. But a big movement right now is to work with more Web2 organizations who are genuinely considering to incorporate Web3 elements in their work. And I hope personally, and that's not something they've discussed yet, but 
potentially that as a consulting firm, we could also work with governments uh, in helping them adopt some of the Web3 tooling. That's, that's something that is particularly, I feel strongly about because right now, most of the government consulting is done by McKinsey and other like large consulting firms. And you don't want McKinsey to dictate how government would adopt Web3 efforts. You know, having some, having an organization that is genuinely operating within Web3 ethos and stands by it would be much more impactful for for both, you know, the government decision-making and for the people affected by it. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I just imagine like the McKinsey annual report on crypto and blockchain, and <laughs> I'm sure it's very valuable and good, but, um, you know, compared to bringing true Web3 natives to the table, it's just going to be different, right? Different things will come out of that, different priorities. So I hope I hope Bankless uh, Consulting can win more of those contracts than, than McKinsey does. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you a little bit about your experience with DAOs. So first of all, what is the most common growing pain that you've observed in the early days of DAOs? And how would you suggest that people address that challenge? I would go the non-Web3 to Web3 transition challenge route because one of the and and I'll compare kind of like two organization two efforts that I was that I've been involved with for Ukraine. The first being Helpia Now and the second being the Peace DAO. And Helpia Now was an effort where it was just a group of people who genuinely cared about Ukraine and supporting people there. And we just got together. We we were working in it like really intense always constantly changing circumstances, uh, trying to, you know, reflect what are the needs on the ground in Ukraine and accommodate for the changing realities of war. And I, for example, don't see how a DAO model would be useful for us. I also understand working for Peace DAO that, you know, from from the get-go was a DAO nonprofit effort, that one of the biggest things was to explain to people who are not into Web3 why this is actually helpful and get them on board. That is that is the biggest pain. And I think until that pain is solved, it will be very challenging for us to reach that mainstream adoption that everyone in DAOs and Web3 are is talking about. And otherwise, we will just continue to create projects like Web3 projects for Web3 people, hoping that someone will just decide to fall down the rabbit hole, falls in love with Web3, and then eventually end up in a community that works on the causes they care about. I want to dig into Web2 and Web3 a little bit as terms that we use in the space a lot, because I can imagine a lot of people from the traditional world saying Web2 was just a buzzword in the first place, and now you're bringing us another buzzword, Web3, that doesn't mean anything. So I'm curious, especially when you talk about Web2 and Web3 in this context, what are you really talking about? Actually, it wasn't really a good application to describe like nonprofit efforts, but I think generally what people are referring to is the centralization versus decentralization debate and then ownership that is kind of delegated by the centralized authority versus ownership by the community from the get-go. But what was interesting is that in LPA Now example, we didn't really have economic resources to distribute we were kind of directing whatever 
people were found and donors were found to different efforts in Ukraine. So we didn't have to make decisions on on where the donations will go ourselves. And with, with the peace doubt, there was a different story because there was a general pool of resources. We had to distribute it. And um, I guess at a traditional nonprofit, you would have, you know, a board or a grant committee that would make those decisions. In the case of peace doubt, that is a community of people who have also donated, meaning they've earned the money that they put into this. And they get a say in where their their funds will get distributed to. So two different models, centralization versus decentralization. Do donors get to say a say in how their donations are being distributed or not? And with the help you now example is if you don't have those economic resources to distribute, does it even make sense to create a DAO? Can it just be, you know, a community of people working on cool things? I love it. That's a great a great way of defining those terms. I'll just add my own take, which is I think there's two sides to it. One side is the the social meaning of those words, which I think you just described. The other side is the technology. So in some cases, when we talk about Web 2 or Web 3, not in the story you were telling, but in some cases, we're talking about like, are you using smart contracts and are people interacting with them with wallets? And if so, that's like a Web 3 technology, whereas Web 2 is like, databases, social media, you know, user-generated content, but in a way that it's all still owned by some central party. Um, so I, I think that actually, pro- to, to me, probably came first. And then eventually people realized that everyone working on these technologies also shared that ethos that you were describing of being more decentralized and sharing ownership more broadly. And so now it's taken on that whole other meeting where even if you're talking about something that has nothing to do with the web or the internet at all, like nonprofits or um, finance or whatever, there's a web two way of doing it and a web three way of doing it. And obviously the one we're both working on is web three. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective to see it from from the infrastructural level and the tooling. I'd be curious to actually get a little bit deeper into how did Web3 come about and was it actually the people, the groups forming and realizing they have something in common and they want to change the way, you know, the the ownership works and super interesting. Now, now I have yeah. some readings to do after this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It reminds me of this awesome session at MCON. Um, and I don't remember if you were in the room or not. I don't think so, actually. But we were, we were, there was a session on trying to figure out what is the ethos of Web3, basically. Like, is there a philosophy that we all share? Or, or are we kind of overestimating ourselves by thinking we all have something in common? And one of my big takeaways from that session was that not everyone agrees on anything about what Web3 means in terms of what we're trying to build towards. For example, one person might say free speech. It's about free speech, freedom to move value. It's freedom to do whatever you want online because once you have it in Web3 and smart contracts, Facebook can't stop you from doing it. Even the government saying you're not allowed to use Tornado Cash, they can't actually stop people from using Tornado Cash. They can tell you not to do it and tell you they'll punish you. They don't have the power to stop you from using it. So that was like one one view. But then on, on the other side, and people can probably imagine maybe where this is going is, well, what about when people misuse their free speech and their freedom to do whatever they want and they're using their power and their speech to hurt other people? Do we really want to live in an internet where trolling and racism and sexism and all this stuff is rampant? 
and uh, just because we wanted to, you know, fight for freedom. Um, so those were the types of things that came up. And some people in the room felt very much one way. Other people felt very much the other way. And uh, that made me think that maybe there is no one Web3 ethos that all of us share. I don't know. I think now it makes sense to go to the perspective that you brought on earlier, which is like the infrastructure and, you know, blockchain existing and voting on blockchain existing as potentially a neutral technology that allows different actions. And so when we try to define morality and kind of like what is our philosophical consensus on what this Web3 effort is, um, we can look at different outcomes of the use of this neutral technology and you can say, well, I agree with that outcome or I don't really agree with the other one. But essentially, like it is the technology itself stays neutral, I believe. And what was the, the reason why it was created from, from my understanding is to enable people to have more determination in whatever it is the things they do. So with DAOs, it's like I have more self-determination in terms of what I can get engaged with. I get more, um, you know, re rewards for participation. I don't have to commit to a single company. We can now create communities of people who find consensus and are able to manage their resources in a trustless, anti-corrupt, corruption-resistant way. And so you have these different applications and you can judge their moral outcomes. But the technology itself exists was created probably to enable us to do more. Yeah, I, I like self-determination, even just choice as a simple way of putting it. I think if to go back to the free speech example, I like the idea that people can choose whether they want to be part of the free speech system or like regulated system where no one's allowed to be mean or whatever, or be disrespectful or anything. Um, and to be able to choose between any number of systems with different approaches to these issues. Um, I still think it, it's going to get complicated when, if and when, like classic example, like Nazis have their like DAO and now you can't shut down the Nazis because we built something that's completely censorship resistant. But you can have this communities existing on the internet anyways. It's like, because they exist and for example, they utilize blockchain and their vote to make their decisions. It doesn't mean that they will get more traction or, you know, that they will, that will help them in some way to to advance their twisted and evil causes. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if yeah. you really don't think it will, because if I think about like Web 2, it's I feel like it's government has figured out how to regulate Web 2, like the, the tr bank, traditional TradFi banking world, like they can take away your bank account, they can stop you from using it, they can call the web hosting company that's hosting your website and shut you down. And they do in a lot of the world. Whereas, you know, once we really have like full, like internet functionality on web three, where people can have websites and again, like the, the sure maybe, okay, let's, let's say instead of Nazis, let's just say group X that we don't like has a bank account. Well, the government can take it away. Once group X has a treasury that's controlled by a DAO, you can't stop group X from raising money and deciding what to do with it together. And they could be paying for hitmen or mercenaries or whatever bad thing it is that they're trying to do. So I, I, I believe in Web3, absolutely. And I, I, I like everything that we're doing, but I, I do wonder if we really will be able to, there may be a really negative side to, to this, right? And how it gets used that we may not be able to stop. That's definitely an interesting take. And I guess, so would you say that in your ideal 
theoretical, you know, Web3 world, we wouldn't have a government to to intervene when something like this happens. And we wouldn't have any, you know, organizations that would make it their mission to ensure public safety and that, you know, things like, you know, aggressive or inequality inducing comments are not shut down. What What is it the... The policing system, I guess, that that you imagine in this fully Web three world is. I don't think I have a good answer to that yet, <laughs> but I do believe in the I, the network state, right? This idea that what Web three is enabling will lead to the next iteration of sovereignty on Earth and, and amongst humans. That you know, today there is, I don't know. A, I may be off by 100, 166 countries in the world, and you have to choose which one you want to live in, which passport you want to have. Maybe you get two or three, but like you have to choose. And I do think we're moving towards a, a world where there are going to be new options that are not necessarily tied to an individual geography. And some of the geographies, like what we're doing with the Marshall Islands for DAOs, might help aid in this transition to having kind of digital sovereignties that are not necessarily tied to traditional concepts like where you live or what passport you hold. Um, I do think that it's inevitable that the world of governments is going to turn into a little bit more of a free market as opposed to this like 166 or 266 country monopoly on power and jurisdiction and sovereignty. And I also think to speak more specifically to your question of who's going to provide security, I think that things like the importance of cybersecurity, as the importance of cybersecurity goes up because more and more and more of what we do lives online, including, let's say, our brain implant that's connected to the internet and all of our money that's on the internet, suddenly does a cyber attack actually become as dangerous as a nuclear attack? And if so, can a, can a network state potentially actually protect you against a traditional state with a nuclear weapon because they're literally just as afraid of you screwing up their neural implant as you're afraid of them nuking you. And so I, I do see a path towards a world where, you know, these the sovereign the nature of sovereignty does shift and things like physical protection could actually be provided by these new nations. Super interesting. And that made me think that if there is, you know, a demand for cybersecurity, for example, then there will be supply of the services. So perhaps you can say, going back to our original question, is when you have you know bad actors utilizing the platform in a way that harms society, that there will be a demand within the society to you know hack those bad actors and steal their money and give it to public goods, <laughs> and potentially that could be one way that you know at a market level the problem can be solved. Okay, let's get back to day-to-day um, -day issues with DAOs because um, that's what I promised my audience. So um, let me ask you, generally speaking, what is the number one piece of advice that you have for someone who's starting a DAO? If someone came up to you on the street, said, Anna, I recognize you from Just Dow It. I'm about to start a DAO tomorrow. What is the most important thing I should keep in mind? What would you say? The most important thing you should keep in mind is the why for starting a DAO and understanding whether you actually need a DAO <laughs> that, and that that should be a sorry, essential question to ask yourself before you're taking on that effort. Um, I mean, if, if you're just trying to play around with setting up DAOs, that's cool as well. But if you have a cause in mind that you're trying to support, think about different 
dimensions of, of a DAO and how they could support that cause and maybe how they could potentially hinder that cause. On the example of Ukraine, because we needed speed, we didn't have almost no incentive. And we had people who were willing to support the cause without any any rewards. Um, we didn't have the incentive to take on that effort to set up DAO the correct way. Now that we are more at a slower stage where we're trying to scale, get more contributors, we're considering this as, as a kind of effort to to bring more people and to also potentially delegate, potentially start accepting donations for HelpEA now and then be able to allow donors and contributors to delegate them. So here, again, if you have that you know, financial resource that you need to distribute, then DAO is probably a good framework for you to consider. Again, for anti-corruption purposes, for transparency, all of that, then yes, go the DAO route, try it out. Do have some experts who have done that in the past and know how to set set up the Gnosis safe and, and know how to set up the token model if that's something you're thinking of for rewarding your contributors. But yeah, generally think about whether you need a DAO first, then do it, <laughs> yeah. DAO it. <laughs> yeah, just DAO it at that point. Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a lot of guests. That, that's the first thing they say is, are you sure you want to start a DAO? Or, you know, the way you said it is, is why, and just knowing why. And I, I really liked also that you said, pick and choose from the things that make a DAO a DAO. You don't have to do everything the same way as another DAO that you've seen. You can pick and choose some elements and combine them in new ways and combine them with traditional ways of doing things too. Um, so I think that's really good advice. And I think a lot of DAOs today, part of their purpose is just they want to be a DAO. And that's fine. If that's part of your purpose is I want to start a DAO because I want to experiment with this new technology, this new social structure, this new legal framework. And because I'm starting a DAO, like we got to do something together. So let's create an NFT project or let's go save the world or let's go build a, a crypto uh, product, whatever it is. I think there's nothing wrong with that either. But I, I think you should know whether that's part of your mission or, or not, or really you're trying to accomplish something specific in the world. It's a fun thing to experiment with. But again, for if you have a cause in mind, then getting the buy-in for people who could be potentially contributors to that cause and understanding whether something like different aspects of DAO governance would be interesting to them and also operationally, you know, meaningful to your effort is super important. Yep. What favorite tools do you have for running DAOs that you would recommend people check out? Well, one tool that I like that I think a lot of DAOs are using is DevWork. And that is for DAO projects to post whatever the ongoing bounties they have. I think this is awesome because as a new contributor, you can easily see whether within whatever the DAO is doing, there's a space for you and your skill sets. So that's one really cool and, and popular one, I guess. And another one that I recently fell in love with is Coordinate. And I went through my first Coordinate round uh, this September. And it was super cool because it enabled me to see who are the people that are kind of noticing my contributions to, to the DAO. And Within Coordinate, you basically have like a pool of gift tokens that don't really carry any value. And so different contributors within DAO award each other those tokens 
you don't like you cannot keep them it doesn't make sense to keep them you have to give it away and sometimes you can write a note saying like hey i'm giving you this many gifts because i think what you did was awesome and so that was that was a very nice experience to hear from people and kind of understand that there are people within you know bankers DAO that recognized what i was doing with onboarding or other efforts and I think more projects should adopt it. And I can even see how this could be useful for traditional organizations instead of daunting, you know, employee performance reviews, you have your employees kind of sharing, you know, oh, I think this person deserves to be recognized to this extent. And also in the case of Coordinate, that's um, a way to get economically rewarded to some extent, because in the end, the gift tokens are... Uh, distributed proportion in proportional way among people who were awarded them. The general like pool that an organization put in is being delegated to to different. So like the bank tokens would be given to those folks depending on how many yeah. uh, give tokens they were granted. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So Dwork and Coordinate, awesome. Um, two of my favorite tools as well. And uh, last question cool. for you before we turn to the conclusion. Um, any favorite DAOs today that you would recommend people check out? And by the way, almost everyone says Bankless, and I also recommend Bankless, so that's definitely a great one. But uh, how about something other than Bankless that you recommend people check out? Okay, no, no Bankless. Bankless Consulting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do hope to see people there. Please come join. I do onboarding sessions. They're fun. Um, but... Well, another one that I really like is Hero DAO. It was started by my friend and also introduced at MCON. And so Hero DAO is a community that owns intellectual property for comic books. And their mission is to take on, you know, different big organizations like Disney who owns most of the you know comic rights and because of that they not only make money on on the comics they also make money on merchandise and the creators get very very little proportionally to the amount that these large organizations get um, what I love about them is it's kind of the first and not the first but one of the few use cases where you don't need Web3 people to buy into this for this to be effective. And this is not a Web3 project for Web3 people. It's a Web3 project for comic creators that gives them this very practical you know, value, which is ownerships in whatever they create and their fan base you know, being able to own also the, the comics that they're supporting. Awesome. I love it. It's a great example. Um, Anna, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, where can people find you and your projects on the web and on social? Feel free to drop as many as you want. You can find me on Twitter. I think my handle is nevm underscore a. And also please check out helpianow.org. Uh, that's the Ukraine effort I was referring to throughout our call. And uh, we're continuing to help people in Ukraine and supporting many of the brave volunteers there. We love new contributors and you will also get to participate in the discussion of whether an effort like ours should be a DAO and whether we should adopt more Web3 strategies. So 
Um, you can find me on Twitter at zero x thriller. You can find MyDAO, our sponsor, and my company at MyDAODS. That's M I D A O D S on Twitter or MyDAO.org. Uh, please, if you enjoyed the show, leave us a five star review. It really helps other people find the show. And again, Anna, thank you so much for doing this. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And uh, for the audience, are you thinking about starting a DAO? Just DAO it. Just Dow It is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Just Dow It does not contain any legal or financial advice. My Dow also does not provide legal or financial advice, and nor does your host, yours truly.